Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In Japan, if you ask someone if they're religious, they will answer no. In fact, you can go to a shrine and interrupt them while they're praying and say, are you religious? No. But their answer in no way tells you whether they are active Buddhists or Shintoists. Most Japanese, in fact, the percentages are that there are more religionists than there are people. That is, people are practicing both religions. Their answer just means they don't consider practicing Buddhism and Shintoism as religious. In Japan, to be a good Japanese means worshiping at the shrines and the temples and doing your duty as a good Japanese person. So homage is to be paid to the ancestors. The children have to receive the proper blessing at the Shinto shrine at particular ages. At death, you have to receive a a name from the Buddhist priest so as to escape hell and go to heaven. And this does not pertain to being religious per se, but it pertains to being, being Japanese. And the culture and the religion are so intertwined as to be inseparable. And I think Japan is not unusual in this, though it's very strange for us. I think this is in fact the way religion and idolatry even are often pictured in the Old Testament. And this is the way religion works for most people outside of a Judeo-Christian context. It's the way the Romans in the time of Jesus thought of their religion. You know, paying homage at the local and national shrines was just a way to be a good citizen. And for the emperor, it was a way of ensuring loyalty. And so the emperor cult was spread throughout the Roman Empire. And belief in the religion, you know, do you really believe the religion, was not the main thing. But the main thing was, do you practice the religion? And in the Bible, religion per se does not play a very prominent role. In the New Testament, in fact, the word only appears a few times. And maybe one could conclude that God's really not concerned about religion very much. So look at James 1, 26 to 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so religion is just to do these virtuous things and it depends upon or it's proved true depending on what merits or what virtues it produces. And Paul in Acts displays maybe what sums up kind of an Old Testament attitude toward religion I think in this speech 
on the Areopagus. In Acts 17, you know, he's entering Athens and they brought him to the hill of the Areopagus and the philosophers are there and the men of religion and the Stoics, the Greek philosophical thinkers. And Paul gets up and says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And so Paul's attitude toward the idolatry and religions of the Athenians it's just a kind of entryway into proclaiming the gospel. Maybe this kind of is the attitude that we find in the Old Testament. He mentions the fact that they're very religious. They have many idols. Doesn't necessarily condemn that. This is not to say the Old Testament doesn't condemn idolatry for the Jews. But he chooses the idol to the unknown God as an entry point to explain the gospel. And so he references their own religious poets. Their philosophy is providing an opening to the gospel. In him we live and move and have our being, and you all know this. And so Paul doesn't bother condemning the idols. And as he says in Corinthians, the idol is nothing. And so as we saw in our Sunday school lesson today, you know, God tells pagan King Cyrus that he's chosen by God that he's using Cyrus to work and to bring salvation you know through Israel to the world he says I've made you strong though you don't know me he's working with Cyrus and Cyrus doesn't even know it now everyone from east to west will learn that I am the Lord because what I'm doing through you no other gods are real I create light and darkness, happiness and sorrow. I, the Lord, do all this. Tell the heavens to send down justice like showers of rain. That is, with this true understanding will come about justice. The Psalms just say this again and again, what's here in Isaiah. I just chose Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so in the New Testament, we know that God is working with all nations. He's bringing all people to him through Christ. John tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the light that lightens every man. Now this text in John doesn't say anything about other religions. But it makes it impossible for the Christian to say that those outside the church are devoid of the truth. Let me quote John Mabiti, who is an African theologian. And he writes, In fostering values such as peace, justice, joy, 
harmony, love, the fight against evil, in celebrating fellowship with one another, and maintaining harmony with nature, in mutual helpfulness among people, in celebrating birth as victory over death, and in renewing community life through rites of passage, through music and dancing, in praying, praising, and giving honor to God. In these activities, followers of African religion are in a real sense walking in the way of the Lord, and it cannot be denied that Jesus Christ is walking with them, or behind them, or over them. Yet Jesus Christ is hidden from them, revealing only flashes of himself. There is a Native American pastor who has written similarly about Native American religion. Uh, he calls it Harmony's Way. And he describes then the one thing that many of the tribes in the Americas shared was this notion of being in harmony with the land. And that the shalom of scripture and the peace of Christ very much fit an understanding that they already had. It prepared them to accept the gospel. Now this is not to say that the incarnation shows that all paths to God are equal or that the cosmic Christ can be found in equal measure everywhere. In John 1, 10 to 11, we see those who failed to see Jesus for who he truly is. But the people referenced as rejecting Jesus and not seeing him, and those who accepted him, they're really not equated with entire religions. Uh, specifically in the various reactions of the Jews whose religion really determines nothing about their reaction to Jesus. Some will reject him, some will accept him. We know Judaism is a kind of preparation for the gospel. And Paul and the early Christians maybe considered themselves still Jewish. Paul is going to go to the synagogues. He's even going to offer a sacrifice in the temple, even as a Christian. And so Judaism was a cultural identity that the early Christians may have not shed. And so too with every cultural identity, every national identity. We don't have to stop being American or Japanese or Jewish to be Christian. God is calling the nations to himself. Psalms 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. As the famous missiologist Leslie Newbegin put it, there may be validity in the argument that people have varying degrees of light influencing them through the Spirit but that encountering Jesus directly through his word in connection to an experience is an overwhelming light that brings life. And so the incarnation impacts everybody in various ways. It encompasses all humanity. And in a sense, it affirms all people in their humanity while also providing them access to salvation. And so Jesus can talk to the Pharisee Nicodemus as kind of ambiguous results. The next chapter he talks to the Samaritan woman. 
And in both instances, he points beyond their religion, which is different, to himself. He can heal the gathering demoniac, and in a sense, he frees him from the religion that has a grip on him. And so Jesus accommodates and affirms the diversity of humanity while also countering destructive elements. As John will put it, he's the light overcoming the darkness. And the darkness and light are both at play. And for the most part, though, the individual person and their experience and their encounter with Jesus is more than religion or more than their religion. And because of this diversity, each people, as well as each generation, will need to meet Jesus on their own terms. This was certainly true for us in Japan. We understood that to talk to Japanese about Jesus, you're going to have to talk in a very different way about very different sorts of <coughs> subjects than the way we might address it here. Some will meet him in a synagogue. Some in the temple or in a temple. Some at a well. Others like Paul, they're actually on a mission to destroy Christianity. And apparently we're learning that some people meet Jesus in a mosque. I just read this in a mission magazine that there is now plenty of documentation to support the idea that God is appearing in dreams and visions to people around the world in places where institutional Christianity has struggled to take root. And these groups include Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Native Americans. And while many are not turning to a, an institutional Christianity, they're attempting to follow Jesus. And the person who has studied this is Dr. David Garrison, and he works with Muslim peoples. And he reports an unprecedented number of movements, and by movement he is talking about a thousand people or more, developing among Muslim communities all over the world. And so as Garrison reports, in the first 1,300 years since Muhammad, there was only one voluntary movement to Christ among Muslims. In the last 20 years of the 20th century, there were eight movements, mass movements. In just the first 12 years of the 21st century, there have been 64 mass movements of Muslims, 64 movements to Christ each with over 1,000 baptized believers and 100 places of worship or you know, fellowships. So today in more than 60 separate locations in at least 17 of the 49 countries that are predominantly Islam, new communities of the Muslim background of followers of Christ are emerging. God is at work among Muslims in a, in a way that is mysterious. Each of these movements, at least a thousand people baptized, and they're talking about millions of, of Muslims coming to Christ. And so in some countries, the communities have grown to tens of thousands. This is happening all over the Muslim world. 
And of course, they're still persecuted. That hasn't let up. The Quran, you know, talks about turn the renegades, seize them and slay them wherever you find them. They're still doing that. And yet the movement grows. I think this is the part of the incarnational principle seen in the Gospels. This is an example of God working with all peoples, all nations, everywhere. And there are already numerous examples of descriptions and interpretations of people from many backgrounds, you know, just in the New Testament, but throughout history, where the incarnation through the word impacts people in their particular culture. Now, I said the good stuff. Now, I want to say something else. And that is that it may be that a culture prepares us, that Christ is at work in a culture, and we have to say, obviously, that religion and culture may pose an obstacle to the gospel. You know, I think we have to have a humble appreciation that God is working through all peoples, cultures, and religions. But this does not mean relinquishing our critical faculty of thought about these religions and cultures. I think the Christian can learn about Christ more completely, you know, through encounter with other cultures. This was certainly true of us going to Japan. My faith in Christianity, my understanding of Christ was greatly broadened by our experience there. And this is the very point of mission, of all of us going on mission. But it is also true that this humility towards other cultures and religions calls for a fullness of understanding. And so it was not uncommon in my experience, in our experience to encounter in Japan, the Westerner who comes to Japan and is just infatuated with all things Japanese. And for some, it's Zen Buddhism. But what these connoisseurs of all things Japanese usually failed to understand was the xenophobic nationalism that could be attached to religion and identity. Now this is not to cancel out that there aren't some positive things there to be found. I'm not saying that. But I think it qualifies the insights that are to be had. The uncritical acceptance, for example, of the authority of a Zen master and Zen teaching, which in the United States has become one of the most popular religions. It's kind of a pop cultural phenomenon, the movement of Zen Buddhism to the United States. Zen has largely been received in the West from the writings of D.T. Suzuki, who has been called the true man of Zen. Yet Suzuki wrote that religion should first of all seek to preserve the existence of the state. And of course he means the Japanese state, and he means the, the Japanese state as it's invading the Chinese mainland, and they're using Zen as a motivating factor. He calls the Chinese unruly heathens. And Suzuki, like many Zen Buddhists in Japan, will say, well, actually Buddhism doesn't exist. True Buddhism doesn't exist in other countries. It only truly exists in Japan. And so we have to go and colonize these heathens in order to present them with true Japanese Buddhism. Zen master Harada Sogoku wrote, 
If ordered to march, tramp, tramp, shoot, bang, bang, this is the manifestation of the highest wisdom of enlightenment. The unity of Zen and war of which I speak extends to the furthest reaches of the holy war now underway. That is, they're using what many see as a benign, peaceful, nonviolent religion precisely in the war effort. And the uncritical seeker after enlightenment is relinquishing a kind of authority. You know, shoot and bang away, not pausing to consider the morality of what is being done in the name of Buddhism or in the name of Japanese faith. We might talk about Buddhist enlightenment as kind of like enlightenment of the 17th and 18th century. Buddhist enlightenment is beyond questioning and the politic connected to this enlightenment is directly associated with the <coughs> Japanese emperor. This is, I'm just giving you a few examples, but Saiki Joen, who is a Hososek priest of the Horiyuji Temple, one of the oldest and most famous temples in Japan. He says, if you receive an imperial edict, you must revere it, for the ruler is heaven and the people are earth. The emperor being holy and divine is inviolable. The emperor's edicts being holy and divine, they must always be revered. We see what is then often considered this kind of benign religion here in the West, perhaps the most widely accepted religion outside of a Judeo-Christian understanding. And I think many people fail to understand the context in Japan that Zen and Buddhism function, that it is deployed in Japanese colonialism. It's deployed in emperor worship. It's deployed in anti-foreign sentiment. Now at a personal level, the Zen practitioner, maybe there's not an awareness of submitting to the final authority of the Buddha. But anything that, that less than total submission really disenables the practice. That is, you have to trust that the path of enlightenment, that you have to suspend critical thought, or you really don't enter the path to enlightenment. That is, accepting the practice is itself a metaphysical presumption. As a Buddhist trust that because a Buddha is perfectly enlightened, then the benefits of the practice will always result. And so belief in Buddhist enlightenment entails belief in the authority of the Buddha. Let me quote the Buddha. He says, nobody is my teacher. Nobody is comparable to me. I am the only perfect Buddha in the world. I have attained supreme enlightenment. I am conqueror over all. I know everything. I am not contaminated by anything at all. I have all the powers of the omniscient. I am an arhat, someone who's attained the goal of enlightenment. I am unrivaled in all realms, including those of the gods. I guess being a Buddhist, you take the Buddha at his word. He says, accept what I did not explain as unexplained. Accept what I did explain as explained. And so enlightenment begins 
by holding to the authority of Buddha's words. Thus one must rid themselves of metaphysical speculation or any subject that the Buddha didn't choose to explain. And so you're subjugating yourself to the authority of the Buddha. And this subjugation is precisely that which is utilized by the Japanese state in its creation of what is called Imperial Way Buddhism. They just lumped all of the Buddhist sects together and made them all Imperial Way Buddhism. And this then, this creation of this Imperial Way of the Buddha, it really is subjection to the Japanese sovereign. So I've given you an example of what we might think is the most radically anti-Christian religion, Islam, and suggested, well, actually, God is at work in the Muslim world. And then I've given you the example of what we might take as the most benign and harmless and peaceful religion, and suggested, yeah, that's not exactly true either. So this is not to say that Christians should not expect to find God at work in other cultures and even in other religions. But this expectation cannot suspend critical judgment. Too often nationalism, religious fanaticism, even genocidal violence. By the way, the Zen Buddhists have themselves acknowledged this and they've apologized for their own participation. And so I'm not doing something that this critique is not one that they don't recognize. The most critical book I've ever read on Buddhism is written by a Zen Buddhist priest, Zen at War. And as a result of his book, several groups of Zen Buddhists have, have now apologized and other groups of Buddhists have acknowledged their part in this. And so the reality of Japanese Zen has a very different history than that kind of pop version that we know about, which accords it only peace and healing. And in the end, false religion is that deployed by the state, I think this is what we're dealing with in the New Testament, to gain absolute obedience. I think that's the problem with Judaism. The grab for power in Judaism creates the same problem. This was true in Roman times, it's true in Japan, and it's true today in this country. It's true of every state. In Christ, God is indeed working with all nations, all peoples, calling all to the light of Christ. Christ may affirm, he may deny elements of culture and religion. But let's close with John 1, 9 to 13. There was the true light which was coming into the world, which enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were, who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, 
please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.